I like the story of the little boy who went to school the first day. He was very, very keen to go to school. And when he came home at the end of the first day, his parents said, well, did you have a good day? No, he said, it wasn't good at all. So they said, well, why not? Well, he said, I haven't learned to read. <laughs> uh, you may feel a little bit like that, I'm not sure. As we scoot through this uh, large uh, part of Old Testament history, you may feel, well, you know, there's an awful lot more here that I'd like to get my teeth into. If that happens, then I think we've been successful. Because one of my prayers is that uh, as we work through this material, it will stimulate you to go back and say, well, I've never really worked at that bit of the Bible, or I didn't know how it all fitted together there before. Do go back and study it for yourself. And you know, the greatest aid to Bible study, apart from uh, having a Bible you can understand and asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate you, is to buy a notebook. It revolutionizes your Bible study when you start to write notes, because it makes you think out what you're learning, and it gives you something to go back to and check out and pray in. Uh, to your life. So I hope that what we're doing together in these days will stimulate us all to dig deeper into the Word of God. So we've got to the sort of light grey sheet now, which uh, may be an appropriate colour for Friday evening. The voice of the prophets, and uh, we're, as uh, John has said, we're on Solomon to the exile. A long period, as you'll see, from 970 to 587. And it's the material of the Book of Kings, two books of Kings, and uh, the, particularly the second book of Chronicles. Now, when I was thinking about how to do this, it seemed to me that the only way to do it was to try and set up some major marker posts through the history, because I think it's at this point that it all starts to get a bit hazy for most of us. We're not too bad up to David. Uh, we can find our way there, but after David, it all gets a little bit sort of uh, muddled and confused. So hopefully the marker posts will see us through and we'll be able to make a bit more sense. Now, we start with the reign of Solomon, which is reasonably straightforward, 970 to 930 BC, in terms of uh, its dates. Um, and uh, in terms of the b biblical material, quite a lot of those opening chapters, as you see up to chapter 11 of the first book of Kings, is concerned with David's son. Usually, this is called Israel's golden age. It's an age of peace and prosperity, and it's important, I think, to catch the biblical mood at the start of his reign. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 1. 1, 3, 1 Kings 3, 1. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. There is a mistake right at the beginning uh, because he's marrying outside of the covenant community. And God had uh, told them not to marry foreign wives. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places rather than uh, the place that God had chosen in Jerusalem for his name to be honoured and revered. So you get at the beginning of his reign the sort of view of the divided heart that really runs all through his reign, and I've put it underneath there in credit and debit terms. There's a recognition that God's promises are being fulfilled. Look with me at verse 8, where he's praying, Lord, your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. God is being faithful. I will make of you a great nation. And although that nation is flawed in so many ways, it's still there in God's land, under God's authority. And he makes a wise request in verse 9, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to shepherd them, to distinguish between right and wrong, 
For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now that's right, isn't it? They're not his people, they're God's people. And that sort of mix of getting it right and getting it wrong runs all the way through the Solomon story. His reign is like that. On the credit side, it's a reign of peace and prosperity, chapter 4, verse 25. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel from Dan to Beersheba lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. That's the great ideal of the Old Testament. Here's the land of promise, the land of peace, the land of plenty. Chapter 4, 29 and 30, he was a ruler of great understanding. God gave him wisdom and very great insight. His wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men of the East and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. Again, that's a great credit point. He did build the temple. Chapter 6 to 8 are all about it. A place for God's name to be revered, a place where the ark was uh, finally brought to its resting place, the completion of what had started at the Exodus, chapter 6, verse 1, in the 480th year after the Israelites had come out of Egypt. In the fourth year of Solomon's reign, he began to build the temple of the Lord. It was right for him to do it. It was now God's time after 480 years. And his reign culminates in its credit side in chapter 10 with a visit of the Queen of Sheba, who says, you remember, the half wasn't told me. This is the most amazing testimony from a Gentile ruler to the faithfulness of God. All the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And here in a little way through the Queen of Sheba's visit, that promise is being fulfilled. And there's a little foretaste uh, of the greater promise fulfillment in Jesus. Remember how Jesus says a greater than Solomon is here. By which he means, you see, if Solomon in his reign brought the Gentile monarch to kneel before him and confess the glory of Yahweh, the greater than Solomon will bring the nations to kneel before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But there is also the debit side. Particularly, I've chosen references from chapter 11 because they run together. But you see, what happened at his accession with his marriage to Pharaoh's daughter goes on in 11.1. King Solomon loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. Many foreign women... Chapter 11, verse 4, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. And his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. So if David failed, Solomon now turns away and begins to follow the gods of the women whom he has made his wives. Chapter 11, verse 9, the Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who'd appeared to him twice, a great blessing that God had given him. And although he'd forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon didn't keep the Lord's command. So 11.11, there is going to be a torn, a ruptured kingdom. The Lord said to him, since this is your attitude, and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Nevertheless, for the sake of David, your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. I will tear it out of the hand of your son. Yet I will not tear the whole kingdom from him, but will give him one tribe for the sake of David, my servant, and the promise that we saw of the eternal kingdom, and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So what we call the division of the kingdom, God calls the tearing, the rupturing. And ten of the tribes become the northern kingdom of Israel and the remaining tribe of Judah and what is left of Benjamin becomes the southern kingdom uh, of Judah. Now, it's a picture of disaster, really. The kingdom is going to be divided. 
Though God promises not to abandon the house of David completely, he will keep his promises. And even, you see, at the height of the monarchy, even at this period of great prosperity and peace, the golden age of Israel, it's all flawed again by that wretched human nature that we all know to our cost continually pulls us down. Even King Solomon is not the answer to the need of God's people to live lives of holiness and godliness and obedience because he's immoral, he's an idolater, and even though he was greatly blessed, and even though God gave him great wisdom, he's a flawed ruler. Well, secondly, the division of the kingdom, 1 Kings chapter 12. The north is Israel, and you remember how Jeroboam becomes king, and he sets up the seat of his government in Shechem initially, and then later uh, the focus of worship in Samaria. And in the south, the kingdom of Judah, the, rem the remnant, as it were, of the old kingdom, with its focus on Jerusalem and Solomon's son, Rehoboam, as king. Jeroboam in the north, Rehoboam in the south. And there's a very interesting incident in 1 Kings chapter 13, which I think is a theological comment on what is happening. It's a story that you may not be very familiar with, but there is a prophet raised up. The word of the Lord came to a man of God from Judah to go to Bethel, which is the shrine in the northern kingdom, which Jeroboam has set up, as it were, in opposition to Jerusalem, and to cry out against the altar there, and to say, O altar, altar, this is what the Lord says, a son named Josiah will be born to the house of David. On you he will sacrifice the priests of the high places who now make offerings here. Now, let's not worry too much about the details, but it's a statement of judgment against the idolatrous worship of the northern kingdom. Notice that in a situation like this, God meets it as we would expect him to do with the word of the Lord. That's the means of advance in Joshua. It's the means of correction in the period of the kings. He raises up prophets. So I've called this section the voice of the prophets because running all through the history, there is God raising up prophets and sending them into the situation with the word of the Lord. But what happens as the story unfolds is that this uh, prophet who speaks God's judgment is himself disobedient to God's word and eventually as the story goes on he's killed by a lion because he has not obeyed the word of God. Now I haven't got time to go into the story, do read it for yourself. But the theological point is this, that it is the word of the Lord that rules, not the might of man, whether he is King Solomon or a prophet whom God has raised up. It's not the word of the king, it's not the word of the prophet, it's the word of the Lord that rules. And that prepares the way for the prophetic ministries that begin now to pile up one on another throughout this period. Because God has not deserted his people, he has not left them without a testimony, and he sends to them prophets who continually remind them of what God's requirements are, and who continually call them back to living in obedience to God. Now let's just follow the history through, and we'll do the next bit a little more quickly. Judah is invaded in 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 21 to 31. This is point three at the bottom of page one. Uh, the invader is Shishak of Egypt. He sacks the temple which had so recently been built, and we are told that after only five years of uh, the reign of um, Rehoboam, uh, the judgment of God is already beginning to fall. Uh, the false religion has entered in. The mother of Rehoboam was an Ammonite. 
and uh, he has been following his mother's ways rather than his father Solomon's faithful uh, when he was faithful to God. And already, you see, in a very short time, God's judgment is revealed. There is um, uh, a plundering of the treasures of the temple by Egypt. Now, this hostility of powers outside of Israel and Judah goes on developing all through the period. Of course, in world history terms, it's a period of one great world ruler after another. What's happening is that there is a coalescence happening in the, in, in the Middle East, as we would call it, and powers are beginning to emerge that dominate the area. So, for example, we shall see the rise of Assyria, and then after that we see the rise of Babylon, and then after that the rise of the Persian and the Medan Empire. And then after that, the Greeks and then the Romans. And that whole story on the secular big picture scene is fitted in, of course, to the accurate record of the Old Testament history, where Israel and Judah, a tiny player really on the board in human terms, is seen to only be strong when they follow the Lord and to be very much a prey to their enemies when they decide to go their own way. So it's not surprising in 1 Kings 15 and 16 to find the story of the growth of Syrian power at this time. Israel and Judah are at one another's throats. There are all sorts of hostilities between them. And in the northern kingdom, uh, God's judgment is seen in a series of intrigues and assassinations, which are followed by civil war for four years in the north, with one uh, usurper replacing another, until eventually there is some sort of stability restored by a king called Omri, O-M-R-I, who makes Samaria his capital and whose son, Ahab, succeeds him. So all this time, the Syrian power to the north is growing. And uh, the question is, will they be able to resist this power? Israel and Judah might have been able to do so if they were strongly united, but they're actually at one another's throats. So it's an opportunity for Syria to begin to flex its muscles. And in the north, the kingdom is ruled successively by Omri, as I say, a usurper, and his son Ahab, who of course marries Jezebel, the princess of Tyre. Now into this, point five, Elijah bursts. And bursts, I think, is the right word. If you remember, it's a dramatic beginning in 1 Kings 17. He storms, as it were, into the presence of King Ahab, and he says, for the next three years, for the next few years, except at my word, there will be no rain. We're not really told anything about Elijah, except that he was Elijah the Tishbet, Tishbite from Tishbe and Gilead, which is up in the hill country across the Jordan. Lots of people sort of regard him as a rugged highlander. I think he may well have been that type of person. But he comes right into uh, Westminster Palace and he says, no rain for three years. I say so. But behind him, of course, the word of God says so, because Deuteronomy says, if you turn away from me, then I will make sure that you do not reap the fruit of the land and that your crops fail. So he's really taking the word of God, claiming it through his prophetic message, applying it into the situation. Now, the story of Elijah is a fascinating one. It's the story of who is God in Israel. You remember the great confrontation in chapter 18 on Mount Carmel, where the prophets of Baal, dressed up in their um, wonderful robes, uh, perform around the altar all day, cutting themselves, trying to get the gods to answer them. The heart of uh, Canaanite pagan religion was sympathetic magic. The idea was that if you slit your arms and the blood flowed out, the god might get the idea that he was supposed to send the red stuff fire down from heaven 
and then by doing that, vindicate himself. And you know how Elijah mocks them and says he's on a journey or he's going to the lavatory or he's doing something. What's gone wrong with your God? Because the issue is, who is God? There is a battle on for the heart of this nation. Is Israel going to go God's way or not? Every sign indicates that they're going to be apostate. They've got a king, Ahab, who worships false gods. His queen, Jezebel, is a tyrant of the worst sort. The story of Naboth's vineyard is evidence of all that. But the Carmel conflict poses the issue. Is there a God in heaven? And, of course, the fire falls in answer to Elijah's quiet, confident prayer. And the people cry out, the Lord, he's God. And the prophets of Baal are slaughtered and Uh, Elijah, as the rain falls, makes his way down into Jezreel, down from Mount Carmel, through the Jezreel Valley to the city, to declare that the Lord is God. And you remember how in the story, Jezebel turns on him, and you can almost hear her spit it out and say, you've killed my prophets, I'll kill you in 24 hours. Look out for your life. And he runs down to Beersheba, out into the wilderness, another day's journey, and sits down and says, Lord, I'm no better than my father's. I'm a failure too. It's all gone wrong please take away my life, which is exactly what Jezebel had offered to do for him a couple of days earlier. But that's the situation he gets into. Now, Elijah is on the one hand a great man, a great hero of the Old Testament, in many ways the representative prophet, because his role is to demonstrate that there is a God in Israel, that his word is secure and true, that you can rely upon it. His great ministry is to call the people back to covenant obedience, to hearing and responding to the word of the Lord. But he himself is human, fallible. Maybe he was a depressive personality, who knows? But certainly he ended up under the juniper tree wishing that he was dead. And God had to gently restore him over 40 days, a journey to Mount Sinai, 120 miles probably, three miles a day, would you like three miles a day walking through the Sinai desert? Sort of package tour for 40 days. And then he got to the revelation of God in the still small voice, which said, there isn't going to be a great revival, but I will have 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal, and I do have people for you to work through, Elisha and Hazael and Jehu, and you've got to go on and do the job. I think he wanted to be another Moses. I think he thought God was going to work through him a great revival that would turn the people's heart back, but it wasn't like that. And yet his ministry stands at the threshold of the prophetic movement to show us what the prophet is called to do. He's called to believe the revelation God has already given and to apply it to the people of God in his generation. And his successor, point six, Elisha, similarly, in a different vein, as a different personality, brings the same sort of challenge to Israel. Elisha's story is the story of what God can do. It's a story of how God can break into situations with miracles, actions, and prophecies, explanations, that reveal his character and his faithfulness. Terrific stories in the life of Elisha, aren't they? Remember the axe head that floats. There's the story of the raising of the widow's son to life, the story of the healing of Naaman the leper, the story of the Syrian army that's captured by them being struck blind. Terrific stories of what God can do. You don't need to fear the nations. Don't need to fear Syria if you trust God. But of course, Israel doesn't trust God. So Elisha stands as a representative of what God would do for his people if they trusted him. But all around him, they're refusing to trust him. He's got a school of the prophets. He's got some people who follow him. 
but his ministry doesn't seem to have turned the nation back. So we come to Jehu's reign in Israel uh, in 2 Kings 9 and 10. Now, he was anointed by Elisha. You remember God told Elijah to go and anoint Jehu, but it was actually his successor who did it. And uh, Jehu became king in Israel and began to purge the pagan cult that was dominant there. Um, He was an agent, if you like, of God's judgment against paganism in the north. But in the year 841, during the reign of Jehu, just after it started, in fact, the Syrian uh, coalition, uh, which included Israel because they had by this time sided with Syria and felt that that would give them security, was attacked by the up-and-coming power, the new world force, Assyria. have to remember that Syria is separate from Assyria. Assyria to the north, more equivalent to Iraq today, Syria in the area which is still called Syria, but the new world power is beginning to flex its muscles, and a gentleman called Shalmaneser III began to attack the Assyrian king, thought he'd take over Syria and mop up Israel. And, of course, Israel was defeated. Um, She had allied herself with Syria rather than trusting God, and she reaped the benefit of that by falling to the Assyrian power. This is one of the um, uh, incidents in the history of the Old Testament that is confirmed by independent archaeological evidence And I'm sure many of you will have seen in the Assyrian galleries in the British Museum what is called Shalmaneser's obelisk, where you can actually see the carving that comes from this time of his victory over uh, various foreign kings, including Jehu, king of Israel. And there's a picture of Jehu down on his knees, flat before King Shalmaneser, bringing tribute to him as he conquers him. Well, we don't need uh, the British Museum to confirm the history of the Old Testament, but it's very interesting when it does. And it's something that's well worth looking at. And uh, if you've got ten minutes in London, just pop into the Assyrian Gallery. It's really very well worth looking at. So this is real history. This is God working in history, showing that his word will be fulfilled. But what's happening in the south? Well, in the south, we get the reign, the long reign, of King Uzziah, who is also known in the Bible as Azariah. Uh, two names that are referring to the same king. And Judah, during this time, while, it, while the north is being allied with Syria and facing um, uh, attacks and oppression, Judah has a period of greater prosperity under King Uzziah. Um, you can read all about that in 2 Kings 15 and in 2 Chronicles 26. And uh, this king, who was 16 when he came to the throne and who reigned for just over 50 years, was in many ways a godly king. But you remember, and it's significant again, you see, how even these godly kings are fatally flawed. How when he became strong, it says in uh, 2 Chronicles 26, he became arrogant. He became proud. And he arrogated to himself the priestly function. He decided that he would offer incense before the altar of the Lord. And you remember he was struck with leprosy and he had to be excluded from the temple and live in a separate house during the remaining years of his reign. Godly man who did much that was good, and yet that fatal flaw running through him again. And it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah the prophet saw that vision of the Lord in chapter 6 of his prophecy, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. The earthly king's been thrown out of the temple and is dead. But the Lord's train 
let alone the Lord's presence, fills the temple. And it shakes with the power of his voice and with the smoke and the glory of his presence like a sort of Sinai vision. Well, we'll talk about Isaiah in a minute, but it's important to see that his prophecy comes at that time. That's when he begins to prophesy uh, at the end of Isaiah's reign, and he prophesies through three other reigns um, in his long ministry. Back in the north, Jeroboam II is now king in Israel. I'm on point nine, and I hope you are. Jeroboam II is king in Israel, and his is a long reign as well. And uh, it's the interesting story of another prosperous time. There are territorial gains because Egypt and Assyria, the two great powers, were weak at this time, and the smaller nations reasserted themselves. And so the Assyrian yoke that had been put upon them was for a little while anyway uh, lightened, and uh, there were periods in which there was a greater experience of prosperity. Of course, uh, in Israel, you are in a position where you... Um, uh, sitting right on the main trade route from Africa up to uh, what we would call Asia Minor and Europe. And it seems as though they were pr pretty good at collecting the taxes in those days and that they had all sorts of uh, caravans of merchants who paid tolls in order to pass through the territory. And a time of peace meant that there would be more merchants and more income from the tolls and uh, so on. It was a time in which things seemed to be going better. But it's fascinating that it's during that period that God raises up another prophet. In fact, the prophet Jonah fits in here. Let's just have a quick look at 2 Kings chapter 14. 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 26 and 27. At the beginning of uh, Jeroboam's reign, after all the difficulties that they'd faced... The Lord had seen how bitterly everyone in Israel, whether slave or free, was suffering. They'd been through this Assyrian oppression. There was no one to help them. And since the Lord had not said he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam. Now, the physical events that made that possible, the peace around, the stability and so on, you see, are attributed to God. God is in control of those political processes. They're not accidents. Verse 28, as for the other events of Jeroboam's reign, all he did in his military achievements, including how he recovered for Israel, both Damascus and Hamath, which had belonged to Yodi, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Israel? Jeroboam rested with his fathers and Zechariah succeeded him. You see, God, in his faithfulness, is granting them a period of prosperity. And the reference to Jonah comes in verse 25, uh, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant Jonah son of Amittai, and Jonah's prophecy, remember, begins that he is the son of Amittai. It's the same Jonah. So he is sent off to prophesy to Nineveh, but uh, at the same time, and Nineveh, of course, the, cap the capital of Assyria, but at the same time, uh, God is working prosperity for his people out of his mercy and his grace. But lest they should think that the moral and the spiritual ingredients are unimportant, also at the same time, he sends Amos, and the ministry of Amos fits in here as item 10 into the context of 2 Kings 14. Now, Amos, as you may know, was a shepherd from Judah. And he was given the unenviable task in many ways of going from the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom to the site in Bethel where there was a cult that worshipped the calf at this time of great prosperity. 
Just as Jonah was sent to prophesy against Nineveh when it was the most powerful city in the the world, um, so God sends Amos to prophesy against Bethel when everything's going well in the north and it seems as though it's a period of great exploration and development. But Amos's message is a message of God's judgment coming upon the exploitation and the greed that he sees all around him. And uh, again, we don't have time to dip into the prophecy tonight, but if you read those opening oracles that are against the other nations and then how he comes into Israel and focuses on Israel, he particularly is concerned to expose idolatry and the injustice that stems from it. The administration of justice has become an instrument of oppression. The wealth of a few is based on the exploitation of the poor. And religion has become a celebration of themselves and of their national optimism. And the message of Amos is either the nation must return to God or perish. The way in which he has blessed them in the past leads to obligations which if they refuse, if they do not repent, means that the judgment of God must fall. And Amos details how, in drought, in plague, in earthquake, in war, and in exile. It's a solemn message. And the man must have required great courage from the Holy Spirit to go from the south to the north in order to bring this word of God to the northern kingdom of Israel at a point where they're beginning to lose touch because pagan worship is so endemic there. They're beginning to lose touch with their origins and with the revelation of God which is still being uh, listened to much more in the south. But Amos is then followed by the ministry of uh, Hosea, which carries the message still deeper. Hosea's um, emphasis is to trace the relationship uh, that God has with Israel back to Moses and the Exodus, back to their nurture in the wilderness, back to the conquest and the settlement. He gives them lessons from history. And he constantly refers back to the covenant which binds them to God. And under the theme of his own wife's unfaithfulness, he unpacks Israel's unfaithfulness and calls them to return to the Lord in repentance. The rulers have made political alliances a substitute for faith in God. They've worshipped false gods. They've been content with external ritualism. Now they must turn to the Lord with a heart of covenant faithfulness and repentance. Now, you see how faithful God is. He raises up the prophets to this ministry. Isaiah's ministry, of course, begins around this time as well. Um, But we'll look at Isaiah's ministry in a bit more detail tomorrow morning, rather than in this section when we've got a little bit more time to spend on it. Let's keep pushing through the marker post, otherwise we won't get to number 20. Inevitably, then, the message is rejected, and we have the fall of Samaria, the capital city, and the end of the northern kingdom in the year 722. Ahaz, the godless king of Judah, has been threatened by the Syrian-Israelite coalition, which besieges Jerusalem. And he appeals to Assyria, to a gentleman who rejoices in the name of Tiglath-Pileser III, or Tiggy pool to his friends, and he comes with the Assyrian army down to support little Judah because he sees it as a chance of mopping up um, Syria and Israel once and for all, and that's what happens. 
uh, Ahaz, king of Judah, calls in Assyria by giving them silver and gold from the temple and by making himself a vassal of Assyria. And Assyria attacks Syria and Israel who are attacking Judah. And in 732, Damascus falls and 10 years later, Samaria, after a three-year siege, finally falls to Tiglath-Pileser's successor, Shalmaneser V. What happens? Well, the people are deported. Some of them are taken off to Assyria. Those who remain intermarry with the tribal units that are around them, the other nations as they're called, and they become the Samaritans who we meet in the New Testament, with whom the Jews had no dealings because they were not the pure stock of Israel. So those ten tribes become the lost tribes of Israel. Um, I won't go into whether British Israelites' views on uh, Britain and the ten tribes are any, anything to listen to, uh, though there have been people who've had all sorts of theories about it, but they've really been lost, those tribes, and intermarried in various ways, and their identity has been obscured, so that the kingdom line goes on in the southern kingdom rather than in the north. Now, in the southern kingdom, verse, uh, sorry, verse point 13, in the southern kingdom, Hezekiah comes to the throne. Isaiah is still the prophet of the Lord there, and uh, there is now just Judah left. But the ministry of Isaiah and his contemporary Micah is again a ministry that promises that unless the southern kingdom learns the lesson of the northern kingdom, it too will go into exile. Not, Isaiah says, to Assyria, but to Babylon. And in Isaiah 39, that statement is made, that unless there is repentance, the nation will find itself, just as the northern kingdom was, carried off from the land and will become the captive of Babylon. And much of the second part of Isaiah's book is directed to that event happening and to strengthening and preparing the faithful remnant to um, face the exile and to cope with it when it comes. But before the exile, there is the reign of Manasseh, verse, uh, number 14, which is a pagan revival. Isaiah's um, ministry seems to be largely unheeded. He does worse than any of the other kings of Judah. He worships not only Baal, but Moloch, uh, who was a god who demanded child sacrifice. The Bible tells us in 2 Kings 21:11 that he was worse than the Amorites. And therefore, Jerusalem comes again under the wrath of God and faces the judgment of God. Manasseh is, in fact, taken off to Babylon because by this time Babylon has risen in authority and is beginning to become a dominant force. And he repents of his paganism, but the people didn't turn back, even though the king changed his mind. But the next king, Josiah, institutes all sorts of reforms. Uh, Josiah, acceding to the throne at the age of eight, at the age of 20, begins a program of religious reformation. They rediscover the book of the law, the book of the covenant, probably the book of Deuteronomy, uh, or maybe more of the books of Moses that have been ignored. But there they are in the temple, and they're read to the young king. And he says, we must put this into practice. We must obey what God has said. And for a while, there is a reformation. Uh, but the lead was not followed by the nation as a whole. At this point, you have the prophecy of Zephaniah, that little book of three chapters later on in the Old Testament comes in here where Zephaniah says there will be a judgment on Jerusalem, but a remnant will be rescued through whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. 
In other words, the promise will continue, but it's being narrowed down all the time. It was the whole nation, then they lost the ten tribes. It was Judah, then they're going to lose that, and there'll only be a remnant left. But God will be faithful to that remnant. So all the time in the background, Babylon is arising. She asserts her independence from Assyria. The Assyrian Empire begins to crumble. The Babylonian Empire comes to the fore. Four. In 612, Nineveh falls in fulfillment of Nahum's prophecy. And in 610, Babylon becomes effectively the new world ruler. Habakkuk has prophesied this and the fact that they will come from the north in judgment upon Judah. In 609, the next year, good King Josiah is killed at Megiddo in a battle and uh, the reform collapses. Um, the successive kings after him do not follow the ways of the Lord. And just a few years later at the Battle of Carchemish, Egypt, with whom they had allied themselves, is routed by Babylon and Judah becomes part of the Babylonian Empire. Judah gets mopped up, really, with Egypt and Nebuchadnezzar succeeds to the throne. It isn't long before Jerusalem is under attack because the king Jehoiakim rebels against Babylon. He thinks that he and the Egyptians can throw off the yoke. He misjudges it. And the whole royal family, the court, and the aristocracy are taken into exile. The temple is looted. This is in 2 Kings 24. And 7,000 of the army and 1,000 of the craftsmen are taken away. This again is seen as the hand of God in judgment because the South has not listened to the warnings of the prophets that they've been sent and because they have not followed in the ways of the Lord. Two Chronicles, uh, sorry, 2 Kings 24 verse 20, it was because of the Lord's anger that all this happened to Jerusalem and Judah and in the end he thrust them from his presence. All that is left is Zedekiah as a puppet king but he too uh, thinks he can rebel against uh, uh, Babylon and is urged by his counsellors to make an alliance with Egypt and to revolt against his overlord. And eventually in 587, ten years later after the first invasion, the Babylonian armies attack Jerusalem, 2 Kings 25. There's a long siege. Jeremiah is ministering at this time. We'll look at him tomorrow. He urges surrender. For a little while it looks as though they may hold out, but eventually the city falls to Babylon, the temple is destroyed, the country is ravaged, all the potential leaders are exiled, and a governor is planted over what remains, the governor Gedaliah, at the end of 2 Kings 25. So the rebellion uh, of uh, the south against the prophet's message culminates in their exile to Babylon. And when you end the book of Kings, it really does look like the end, doesn't it? It's Eden all over again. The promise has been ignored. Rebellion has replaced obedience. Judgment has fallen. Exile is the result. And you ask yourself, what will become of God's promise to bless all the families of the earth through the family of Abraham? Things are at the absolute lowest that they possibly could be. What's gone wrong with it all? And if we only had the history books, we wouldn't know the answer. But because we have the prophets as well, we know the answer very, very clearly. Because it is the prophet's task and message to explain what's happening in the events of the history. Remember our formula last night? Actions plus words reveal personality. Events plus explanation constitute biblical revelation. 
We get the events in the history. We get the explanation in the prophets. So the prophet's task is to speak God's word, to foretell God's word into the situation of their day. That's the prophetic ministry. In a sense, the, pro- the prophets are preachers of the law. Now, there are fresh revelations that come to them and through them about what is going to happen in detail in the future. But the primary task of the prophets is to preach the law of God to the people, to expound the word that has already been given. Those of you who know that excellent little book by Fee and Stewart, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, unfortunately it's out of print at the moment, so please all write to Scripture and ask them to reprint it because it's a very good book. How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth by Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart. They say the prophets are God's covenant law enforcement officers. Now I think that's a very helpful way of understanding the prophet's ministry. God's covenant law enforcement officers. That's what they're sent to do. They say, this is what the Bible says. This is what you ought to be doing. Here is the law of God. This is the way we are to order our lives. That's their task, to speak the word of God in power to the situation. Their theme is to repeat the warnings of judgment and the promise of blessings. That's why you've got so many of the minor prophets, as we call them, full of statements of the judgment that is going to fall if the people don't turn to God, but also encouraging them to look for blessing. Hosea's prophecy ends with great potential for the future because God is still faithful and he will bless those who turn to him. God deliberately places these prophets at the crisis points in the history to remind the people of his character and to turn them back to him. Thirdly, their actions also reveal the mind of God, whether it's Elijah on Mount Carmel calling down the fire so that everyone can see the Lord, he is God, or whether it's Amos at the Bethel shrine denouncing publicly the worship of false gods, or whether it's Jeremiah on trial for his life because he's saying God has turned against Jerusalem, you might as well capitulate now. All these actions are part of the revelation. They're a dramatic symbolism of God's intervention in the historic process. And their method is to speak orally. First of all, Samuel, Elijah, Elisha were speaking prophets. But in the 8th century, with Amos, Hosea, Micah, Isaiah, and so on, the writing prophets begin. They write down their oracles. They collect them into a book. They begin to shape them theologically by the order of the oracles. And they begin to express the message more folk, in a more focused way uh, as generation after generation, needs to hear the call of God back to his law. So their context is a context of greed, 2A. They are particularly concerned about the wealth of the privileged few and the increasing poverty of the majority. The luxury that was seen in Israel and in Judah, particularly in places like Ahab's palace in the north, These are the things they denounce. Secondly, they denounce the exploitation that goes with that, that so many of the poor are exploited by the wealthy. Thirdly, they denounce the quick profits that seem to have grabbed the nation, the greed and dishonesty that increase the gap between the rich and the poor, and the agricultural oppression uh, that undermines the foundations of their society. And these... uh, Economic and social sins are, fourthly, all seen as the consequence of idolatry. Their great message is that this disintegration of the people of God socially happens because spiritually 
they've turned their back upon the living God and given themselves to idols. The chronology is in section 3. The core is section 4. Five things before we go home. 40 seconds for each. One, the Lord is king. That's the great message that runs through. He's the ruler of all history and every nation. Mankind is responsible for his choices, but God's sovereignty directs the world. You cannot change that any more than you can switch the sun off. You cannot switch off the sovereignty of God. The Lord is king. Two, man's most pressing need is to be right with God. That's what matters most. Not human alliances, not power broking, not armies, not economic prosperity, but prepare to meet your God, Amos. Your most pressing need is to be right with God. Three, religion and society are founded on a moral basis. So God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I want obedience, not ritualism. I am looking for quality of life that is holy, not external religiosity. We need to hear that. God is not impressed by our many religious activities. He looks for a heart of obedience. He looks for holiness of life. Four, judgment is a reality. And God still chastens and God still judges. But judgment does not extinguish hope. Running all through the 8th century prophets, there is the statement that judgment will come, but there is also the assertion that there is hope beyond. For fifthly, God has a future for his people. He will not forget his covenant promises. The covenant relationship will focus in a great one who is to come. And in a new covenant, Jeremiah says, written on the heart, not on tablets of stone, but on the flesh of the heart. Not external, like the law code at Sinai, but written in the minds and hearts of those who are God's true covenant people. That's the hope that lies ahead. And at the point where everything seems to be lost, as first the northern and then the southern kingdom goes into exile, the prophets stand up and say, but God has promises, and he's going to keep them. And don't think that this is the end of the road because there are more hills to climb and more mountains to discover and more promises of God to experience.